Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in gospel ministry in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here, and I'm joined by our usual crew, Dr. Paul Jean, senior pastor at PCA uh, Church in the area, New City Presbyterian Church. Also, Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament. Peter Lee, our dean of students and professor of Old Testament and Grace Sutanto, our professor of systematic theology. This is the third installment in our Apostles' Creed dialogue. And today, everybody, we're talking about what it means for God and for us to believe in God, who is maker of heaven and earth. This is one of those doctrines that we could say is unique in the ancient world. This is one of the unique innovations, okay? And I'll put quotes around that phrase, but one of the unique innovations of the biblical faith The idea that God is not a part of creation, but is separate from creation and makes creation in this this way that can be defined as a creator-creature distinction. Um, As many people will know, many readers of the Bible will know that the, the pagan belief systems of the ancient Israelite context would have held that creation was made out of a God either was a God vanquished in battle or in some other way that that creation is somehow coincidental with the pantheon of gods. And yet in the biblical faith, as we see laid out in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we we see this really incredible and somewhat new and radical idea that God creates creation out of something other than himself. He creates it out of nothing, right? It comes out of him. He is creator, and yet he is distinct from it. All right, so what are the implications, guys? Let's talk about this a little bit. What are the implications of this idea of God as maker of heaven and earth? Hey, Scott, so if I can begin by just uh, reading an excerpt from Bobbing's Reformed Dogmatics. Recently, I came across this, and I thought it was just so uh, interesting and timely what he writes. And so this is on page 173. He says, in this mighty centuries-long struggle, polytheism, and he sort of goes in back and forth with pantheism as well, was overcome and deprived both religiously and scientifically of all its power. Then Bobbing notes, however, this does not alter the fact that polytheistic ideas and practices survived in various forms, repeatedly found fresh acceptance, and especially in modern times, powerfully reasserted themselves. But he goes on to say something that I think is very helpful. He says, uh, when the confession of the one true God weakens and is denied, and the unity sought in pantheism eventually satisfies neither the intellect nor the heart, and this is very relevant to our times, the unity of the world and of humankind of religion, morality, and truth can no longer be maintained. So Bavink, you know, he's basically commenting that this um, doctrine of believing that there's one true maker is foundational uh, in order for us to achieve any sort of reconciliation. Just interesting that he wrote this so many years ago and still so um, relevant today. And of course, Bobbing's responding to a lot of the same movements in modernity that we are as well and, and, and kind of drawing attention to the importance of this idea of God being above and over and against creation. I like how he talks about how that unifies all of creation and unifies humanity in a way, right? As creatures before the creator. Since we're all talking about Bavink, I think one of the most useful quotes from Bavink is his distinction between the creator as immutable being on the one hand, 
with creation as mutable becoming on the other that god as the infinite creator because he's the simple god he's utterly perfect utterly absolute and hence utterly immutable he is completely distinct therefore from changing and shifting creation uh, and god without himself changing brings about creation uh, to come to pass so i think that's a crucial uh distinction there especially because boving was writing in a very panentheistic context in the 19th century where a lot of people were trying to say and trying to say that god and creation were overlapping in some way that god has his being in becoming god has being within the creatures becoming and therefore god develops with the historical process boving is saying that the creator creature distinction should be maintained over against that that god himself is again being and being has no overlap with the becoming of creation great i'd love to get your thoughts on something that you were you were saying bobink and the language of creation creation becoming what um i'd love to get your thoughts because one of the issues that seems to come up a lot especially when you think about god creating an uh, eden for humanity as this kind of perfect place that language of perfect comes into the, the the narrative that we tell ourselves about creation it was perfect and then it became imperfect through sin and through the fall and I, i'm wondering if you, if there's some thoughts on bovink and that language of perfect there because when i when i read the genesis narrative when i and when i think about it from a new testament perspective as well the language of it was perfect it became you know cursed it isn't altogether helpful in some ways because there is a becoming a betterness that's supposed to happen even in the midst of the original created order yeah that's a great question tommy i think we can think for example about the idea of the covenant of works right that god had created creation as good but is not yet mature not yet eschatologically mature can we use that word again now it's not yet finalized right god created a good creation so uh perfection was there in seed form but it was held out as a promise given to adam and were he to obey to crush the serpent and to sanctify uh eden and to be fruitful and multiply then uh creation would be eschatologically realized there would be an elevation of nature from the created order to a a new creational order of the eschaton right the final state so is that what you had in mind tommy yeah yeah and i think that that's really helpful you know because you know we've got a lot of things that are embedded in the creation account we've got that cre- cre- creator creature dis- distinction that scott mentioned um the adamic character of the world that paul brought out and then i guess when you add to that this idea of becoming or growth or maturity i love the language of maturity i think it really reflects the biblical ways in which we talk about these things but when you bring that to the foreground it also sets the narrative running right that that, right. that this is designed from the beginning to be a, a a story of god's glory expressed in, yeah. in a culminating way across history and i think one of the biblical texts for this is found in 1st corinthians 15 verses 44 onwards right which speaks about how if there is a physical body then there must be a spiritual body now maybe we have in view here a post fall body in contrast to a resurrected body but actually in context paul is citing genesis 2 so this is a pre fall reality genesis 27 right which speaks about how 
there is a physical body as created, not as a fallen body, but as a creaturely body. And the positing of this physical body, which is in the, in the created order, in the original innocent state, actually means that there is an implied eschatological spiritual body, a body that is no longer subject to sin, a body that is no longer subject to temptation, to mutability, to decay, in a way that Adam's was. Adam's body was mutable. Adam's body was still subject to temptation. There was still a possibility of death threatening over him. There was a possibility of sin threatening over him. But in a spiritual eschatological body would be immutably perfect, right? To, to use Westminster Confession Faith 9, right? This is a, a glorious body. This is a, a body of glory that is no longer able to sin. And that's really different than the innocent body that Adam had. And so the idea of becoming is a redemptive historical idea, yeah. right? If we think about how in creation there is an eschatological history. So to use Gaffin's language, right? And I'm sure this would make you really happy, Tommy, because it makes me really happy. I'm warming up right now, yeah. <laughs> right. Is that eschatology precedes soteriology because eschatology yeah. was promised in potology. Yeah, it, it's and he's he's pulling from Voss, eschatology precedes protology. Yes. I was just gonna I was gonna correct you there, Gray, and say that uh yeah, Dr. Gaffin does say that because uh Voss says that, but uh you know, to your point and uh something that I have uh so genuinely appreciated from Dr. Gaffin's work is you know, you cited first Corinthians fifteen forty-five, Paul's citing of Genesis two seven as describing the um the, the natural man or the natural body and how you know previously he had described the the fallen body as a result of sin as also a natural body and i always found that so intriguing that for paul he saw the pre-fall body of adam and our our corrupted body because of the fall as being more of a similar kind where i think we tend to think you know pre-fall body of adam and you know, resurrected body as being more similar, but that's not correct. It, it sort of shows the nature of and the impact of the resurrection is so radically different or does something that is so radically different that the nature of the pre-fall body and the post-fall body are more similar than the pre-fall body and the eschatological body. And that's such a mind-blowing idea. And uh, something that uh, I've so genuinely appreciated from from what he has to say, uh, from what Dr. Gavin's had to say there. And that's exactly right, Peter. I mean, what you just said there that the fallen body and the created body are in one genus, so to speak, right? They're two species within the same genus, precisely because they come from nature, the, the origin of it, it's, it's natural. The spiritual body. There, uh, Gaffin and Voss take that to be uh, an origin, a gen genitive of origin, uh, if I recall correctly, where the spiritual body is, it's a body from the spirit. The spiritual, not in the sense that it's immaterial, but a spiritual is in the sense that this comes from a supernatural working, exactly, right. working of God. And hence, in that way, it's definitely of an elevated order than the natural body there. And so I think that the Bavinkian theme of grace restoring nature brings us to Brian Madsen's really pithy summary of it, which is that when we are redeemed in Christ, we're actually restored to our destiny. We're given back that which we're supposed to be going to anyway, if Adam had not yet fallen, right? So redemption doesn't bring us back to the innocent state, but it restores us to the, to the trajectory 
that Adam was supposed to have had, the, the promise that was given to him there in the covenant of works, the, the life that was offered to him. And so redemption doesn't create a new identity, doesn't create a new trajectory So, insofar as, it, as if it eliminates Adam's natural identity or trajectory, but rather restores nature. And that's really, really crucial. So without jumping ahead to, uh, to one of the later propositions of the Apostles' Creed, um, is there an analogy here when we're talking about pre-fall, post-fall, and resurrected body? Is there, anal- is there an analogy here with, for instance, Christ, incarnation, Jesus growing in wisdom and stature and favor, being something like that becoming of the pre-fall Adam and in his resurrection sort of attaining this new genus, as you say. Is, is there an analogy there? Do we see that being worked out in the life of Christ? Yeah, I, I think that there, I think that's a great po- point and that there is, and, you know, maybe an interesting place to go to, you could go to Romans five, but I like to go to Hebrews two for this, uh, that Hebrews quotes the psalmist, uh, you know, very popular quote in the New Testament talking about the, you know, the, uh, he, um, he for a little while became lower than the angels, but we now see the one who is crowned with glory and honor. Mm. And this being then a reflection on humanity, uh, who is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you consider, that you consider him, but then particularly Christ. And so Jesus, as the one true God man, becomes like us in every respect, Hebrews 2 through 5. Uh, sharing with us in all of our sufferings under the state of the, the, the world in, in its state of cursing, and then becomes the glorious, you know, the glorious Lord of heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He ministers in the true tent. You, you see this, Jesus becomes what Adam should have been. He, he, he receives the glory that was promised to Adam, but never received. And as a result, he calls us his many brothers. He receives us as adopted sons of, uh, of the father. So we then are, uh, be, become what Christ is in, in our resurrection. And we can say that without committing any hostility against the second person of the Trinity, for instance, and we're talking about Christ and his dual natures of very God and very man. Just, just to be clear about that, we can say that Christ is in his human nature is about the business of growing in obedience and wisdom and stature. Right. This does not assert some kind of mutability within the second person of the Godhead. I'll leave the communicatio idiomata to our systematician, but uh, yes, I think so. Yeah. We try to keep a strict line of separation between any biblical theology and systematic theology here. I would be actually curious, Gray, if, if you had thoughts on that. It's it's something we do in Hebrews to Rev, and we end up doing it in Gospels too, to talking about the the genuineness. So we are getting into the other articles here, but the genuineness of Jesus's humanity as somebody who, like the world, who matures. Right again, that language of maturity is 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 helpful. It, it, often in the Gnostic Gospels, you have Jesus kind of. He's, he's born a fully functional human being uh, and you lose that and he's doing miracles in, in, in his infancy and things like that. And you lose that idea of his maturity and his growth, his, he becomes, um, he grows and matures as a human being does. But 
thoughts on that, Gray? Yeah, I think the short answer, as you had hinted at, Tommy, is pointing to the communicatio di matum, right? Which is the communication of properties, which is the idea that uh, God in his divine nature cannot be passable, cannot suffer, cannot mature in any way. God in his divine nature is immutable and therefore immutably perfect. So whatever we say about Jesus's maturity, uh, we say about his human nature, right? That Jesus Christ suffered by virtue of his human nature, that the second person, the Trinity, therefore, doesn't grow in his divine nature, but grows only in his human nature. So whatever predicates we say about both the divine nature and the human nature, though we can't transfer it to the other nature. So we can't say that Jesus's human nature, for example, is impassable. We can't say that his human nature is independent and simple. His human nature is, you know, composed of parts and so on. Neither could we say, therefore, that, you know, from the human nature to the divine, we can't say that the divine nature is compossible or could be divided into parts, right? Uh, both of the predicates of each nature have to be kept within each nature and not transferable to the other nature. Yet at the same time, given the communication of properties, we say that the properties of each can be predicated of the person of the Son. Why? Because in the incarnate Jesus Christ, the person that is pointed to, that is denoted by uh, uh, um, the incarnate one, is actually the second person, the Trinity. There is no one other than the Son that we're encountering there. Uh, what we encounter is, of course, the human flesh, and that's what's mutable, that's what's maturing. But who we encounter is always the second person in the Trinity. And so the, the predicates, again, of the human nature cannot be transferred to the divine nature because the divine is immutable, but it can be spoken about in terms of the second person. Now, well, and then, and then yeah. kind of bringing this back to creation, uh, it's a good reminder, you know, this, this, these Christological reflections are a good reminder that when we talk about creation, we, we're not talking about something that God does kind of in abstract, that he has, that this is, this is part of a history of, a, of, of the manner by which God is going to reveal his glory in time and space. And so there's a narrative, a story aspect to it. And, you know, to Paul's point, all within a damic shape. The the yes. goal of those six days is to to is for God to place His King over creation, His Adamic King over creation, and Adam and Eve are to are to be that, and their course is going to determine the course of creation, uh, the the course that the world then then takes. Um, That's right. Yeah. One which brings glory to God, or is it will it bring uh, it bring a curse? So you got this Adamic shape, and then because of the way the narrative works out, we have a Christological shape to the way of, to, to, to God as the maker of heaven and earth. Yeah. You know, I want to come back to the uniqueness of that claim and ask a question to the Old Testament scholars in the room, right? Because God creating heaven and earth, right, is such a huge and monumental claim. It's a very unique claim of Christian theism, right? Creation ex nihilo says that God and creation are not identified there's no pantheism here on the one hand which says that god is becoming with creation nor is there a kind of polytheistic religion here because in polytheism creation just kind of comes about out of a cooperation as if god is in the same class as other gods but in christian theism god creates out of nothing because god creates solely out of himself because of the richness of his abundance though he didn't need anything he creates out of nothing and he creates out of his sheer power, the work of his fingers, right? His creation. That's really unique in a theological context, but I love hearing about how it was unique also in the ancient Near East context, 
that this was actually quite a polemical document against other ancient Near East religions. And I'd love to hear more about that from, from you, Peter and Scott. Well, I feel, I'll tell you, as an Old Testament guy, just having heard the little that we've talked about already, it, you know, here we're trying to talk about a the, the concept of creation, and yet we've already incorporated, you know, eschatology or eschatological directions. We've talked about sort of philosophical def definitions of perfection. We've talked about the communicatio idiomatum. You see why I can't get past Genesis 1 through 3 and Genesis to Deuteronomy. You see, it's, it's impossible uh, to do that just because there's just so much to unload and unpack and in just the concept of uh, uh, creation uh, alone. But yeah, to, to your point, Gray, uh, yeah, it, it, it is one of the real marvels of, um, of ancient literature in terms of the uh, the Old Testament biblical creation account that it is, in fact, creation ex nihilo, as Scott alluded to, that it's not from, you know, the dead carcasses of deities from cosmic battles and, and things like that. The uh, you, you almost get the sense that the ancient world needed an explanation for this sort of embedded uh, tension, this sort of fallen, corrupted nature in humanity. So where did it come from? Well, it, it came from the corrupt nature of, of decaying carcasses and things of this nature where uh, creation of humanity and, and, and creation in general was, was not that way uh, originally. And you definitely see a, a purity to the creation account in, in, the, um, in the biblical text. And for that reason, the superiority of the biblical text and its portrait of God as creator of all things. Yeah, you can imagine looking at, you know, just the natural world around you, you can imagine how people in an ancient agrarian setting would start to assign a, a kind of deity status to the phenomenon, natural phenomenon around them, whether it's a storm cloud or it's fertile soil or it's livestock and, or, or it's the ocean for that matter, you know, where, you know, which is, which is one of the major deities in the ancient pantheons. And it's kind of radical in the Genesis one telling where you have a clear God figure, a clear God character interacting with Yom, right? The sea and interacting with creation. And yet at every point he is merely speaking it into existence. And it shows this kind of um, utter dominance, right? You know, utter otherness of the creator. Um, and, it, and it comes out, it's, it's not as clear, actually, in some ways in Genesis 1, it's not as clear that it's ex nihilo as you find it elsewhere, like Psalm 19 and Psalm 104 and other passages, where it's clear that all things are made by him. Um, but the way that the story is told really does create this character. I mean, and I'm speaking of this in literary terms, but it creates this character of God as creator, which is going to inform every single story that happens afterwards, right? The idea that he's not somehow bound up within the system of creation, but that he is speaking over and against and above it. He's, he, he exists perpendicularly to the timeline of creation, right? He, 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 he completely surrounds it. Now we're getting into this doctrine of aseity, right? He's not contingent on anything like creation, which is entirely contingent. And, you know, the, I think actually if Christians grasp this idea, it will help them deal with so many of these other, you know, troubling passages in the Bible, they might say, you know, the, the difficult passages in the Bible, like events where supernatural things take place, 
where God suspends the laws of nature, where, where God does things that are totally against and, and, and different from typical human experience. And that's in large part because he's not like Zeus. He's not like Baal, right? He's a different kind of God. He's over and against this whole thing. He, he's, he's outside of the system. And as a matter of fact, I mean, we, you know, uh, we were talking about this the other day in an offline conversation, but that actually gives us the grounds of our own knowledge. The, the, the fact that we can say anything true about this universe is because this kind of deity, this creator who's distinct from creation, reveals himself both specially through scripture and generally through the creation itself, but he reveals himself. And as a result, humans can say true things about the world. Not just Christians can say true things. Humans can say true things, right? Because the creator has spoken from outside the system. Apart from that, we're lost in the relativity of this, you know, what, what Kant calls the sensuous manifold, right? I mean, how, how can we, uh, how, how can we speak any truth if it weren't for this revelatory creator, God, who speaks into creation to humans? And that really doesn't form everything that happens over the rest of scripture. I, I love that, Scott. I love how we're really praising God in, in almost quasi-worship here as we're just kind of talking about it with this concept of God as creator, because that's so appropriate. That just seems so in the intent of the, the creation narrative, not just in Genesis, but wherever creation is borrowed upon as sort of the, uh, the, the theme to portray its theological reality, like, you know, the, the exodus has so much creational overtone. It's like a, a new act of creation when God is redeeming Israel, when uh, the prophets are proclaiming the, um, uh, to a certain extent, even the restoration is almost like a, another creation. Even our salvation is described in creation images that, you know, Paul and the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And and, and it's such a, a great thing that we stop and, and, and we praise and we worship God because he is the maker of heaven and earth. And it's tragic that in so much in, in certain theological circles that we've taken the doctrine of creation and made it a point of controversy that we have to fight over uh, as opposed to a doctrine to stop and thank God for. Uh, and it seems at that point, what we kind of have to do is almost, we, we have to redeem the doctrine of creation we have to claim yes. it properly in its biblical context as something to, yes. to rejoice over as opposed to use as sort of shibboleths to divide, uh, you know, uh, the, the church. I mean, you know, with certain parameters. I mean, we don't, I don't think we can accept things like macroevolution as a biblical concept to explain the origins of humanity. Uh, we have to hold to a covenant of grace. Historical Adam is a non-negotiable uh, humanity being made in the image of God is a non-negotiable, but within certain parameters, uh, not lose sight of the fact that, you know, it'd be great to hear, you know, uh, preaching in the context of the church on creation uh, as a point of celebration and, and worship, and uh, that would be uh, something that, uh, you know, not this apprehension to preach on Genesis 1, but an excitement to do so, mm. you know, and... Um, I've often, often been, uh, 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 I guess, intrigued with the idea when, you know, when Job in his audacity, you know, stood before God and, and demanded an audience to show the injustice of God before God, you know, that's just real arrogant hubris. And when he gets it, you know, where does God take him to show his humility? And 
how Job really didn't know anything at all. He took him to creation uh, to explain, you know, what little he doesn't know and how, um, and if that's true, it, it just seems odd to me that we kind of put up these, these dogmatic, you know, inflexible views that, that will divide us as opposed to uh, bring us together and, and claim creation as, a, as something to, to praise God for. Yeah, and it's not to take away from all these interesting hermeneutical and exegetical discussions that we can right. have about passages like Genesis 1, Genesis 2, what do we do with the flood? What do we do with axe heads floating in the Old Testament? How about Jesus rising from the dead? How about our, our plans for new creation, you know, new and, uh, and new heavens and new earth? It's not to take away from hermeneutical, exegetical discussions of that. And yet, I think something I'm often struck by is the way not to engage with those conversations is to, you know, is, is to approach those as if you don't remember that God is the maker of heaven and earth, right? I think a lot of times when we have these discussions like these science in science versus theology or science versus the Bible discussions, a lot of times they are done in light of this idea that God is actually not distinct from creation and creator yes. of it, right? And it's assuming that God is is bound up in creation in a way that the Bible does not teach, you know? Yeah, now, I agree. As an Old Testament guy, I still love having those conversations. I but, totally agree. I, I think that's the best of our tradition. We can embrace worship, and that's not distinct from good scholarship and and rigorous intellectual uh, endeavors. And mm-hmm. and we don't have to pick and choose between the two. We can do both, and they are very uh, complementary uh, as sort of a a real refined way and a real precise way of of appreciating uh, the doctrine of creation at a kind of micro exegetical level at the level of methodology, uh, hermeneutics. And, 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 and I agree, I, I, I don't think one is at the expense of the other. I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just being idealistic and saying that I just want it all, but yeah. <laughs> to, bring, to bring both your comments here together, Scott, you mentioned how the doctrine of creation emphasizes God's aseity, his independence. And Peter, you talked about how the doctrine of creation is actually a source of worship. It's doxological as much as it is theological. And I think one of the things that really get me excited is thinking about the doctrine of divine ideas. And it gets me really excited, even though it's actually a, a pretty scholastic doctrine it was articulated very much by Aquinas and by Bonaventure. They basically argued that the doctrine of creation is, is emphasizing the reality of divine ideas as an exemplar for creation. And this is really significant because if you think about a disanalogy, right, how do we create things? When I want to write a lecture, I listen to other lectures. I use things outside of myself as an exemplar for me to imitate, for me to follow, for me to learn from, in order for me to create my own work. When a builder or an architect look to create a building or a house, they look at other architectural work as an exemplar for themselves to use to create things, right? So anytime a creature creates anything, they have to use an exemplar, which is outside of themselves, to which they need to participate, that they then imitate in order to bring about something new. With God, however, he doesn't have any exemplars outside of himself. His exemplars are within himself. They are himself, the divine ideas, which are in the mind of God, which are ultimately identical to God's own wisdom and God's own knowledge, because God is simple. So when God creates the world, what exemplar does he use? Not something outside of himself that would violate creation out of nothing, but rather God uses his own wisdom 
to create everything else outside of God. And so this also brings to bear the fact that creation therefore reveals God, that, that through creation we can worship this God because creation reflects God. But at the same time, as creation reflects God and God is imminent within creation because creation reflects God's ideas, God is still utterly distinct from creation because God didn't use an intermediary logos to create the world. God uses his own logos. God is utterly distinct because he didn't use anything outside of himself in order for him to create. And to me, that's always such an explosive idea to think about because it, it protects us from all kinds of platonic theories of God using necessary forms or something like that. And also protects us from polytheism that says that God is dependent on anything outside of himself to create. So it protects both God's absoluteness and his transcendence on the one hand, but also emphasizes his imminence, which I think is so unique to Christian theism. Yeah, this, the, there's this beautiful passage in Proverbs, Proverbs 8, where it's Lady Wisdom giving this soliloquy about her benefits, you know, and she's drawing us to her. And there's this beautiful description of creation there. You know, people always go to Genesis 1 for creation. They forget there's all these creation accounts in the Bible highlighting different aspects of creation. And in this creation account, the Lord is, is marking out kind of like an architect. He's marking out creation and lady wisdom is there. Okay. This personification of divine wisdom. And she describes herself poetically as, as kind of delighting in dancing around in creation as the Lord is forming creation and weaving her into it. Right. There's even a passage there uh, in, in your ESV will say in verse 30 of chapter eight, it says, I was there like a master workman. And the word actually, that's, that's kind of a rough translation um, uh, of, of a difficult Hebrew word. And, and there's an argument to be made that the Hebrew word there, I think it's Hamon, uh, should be translated little girl. Because here's Lady Wisdom and she's reflecting on creation and there she is. And how's she depicted? She's dancing, she's rejoicing, she's delighting. Sounds like a little girl, right? She's, she's rejoicing in creation and being woven into it so that you can go to creation and see the attributes of God woven in through it. And that's why you can, according to Proverbs, go to, go to the ant you sluggard and, and learn, learn about how to work hard and be industrious from this ant or, you know, go look at a lizard on a rock or, or the ship in the sea or something like that. You know, this idea that creation gives expression to the character of God in a Romans one kind of way, but that, it's such a beautiful and important picture that that creation rejoices in and reflects God, even to the point like with the prophets, when the Lord brings a disputation against his people, when he brings a lawsuit against his people, go look like Micah six, you know, and other passages, when the Lord brings this, this disputation, this, this Hebrew reeve against his people because of their covenant unfaithfulness, the only thing that he can call to bear witness against his people. You can't call Babylon because they've got no standing in this court, right? You can't call Egypt. You can't call Philistia, but who can you call? You can call creation, right? So creation comes and bears witness to God's people's unfaithfulness, right? And it's this really interesting you know, dialectic that's going on in the Old Testament about creation what is the nature of creation even in this post-fall environment it's under the curse and yet the lord never rescinds his judgment that it is good so even as we look around us now we're seeing god's good creation under the burden of the curse and yet it's still good you know and it's reflecting his character and it's reflecting who he is and bearing witness to him and it's just 
it's, it's such an important doc, doctrine, you know, even as we're talking about the Apostles' Creed, it's remarkable to me how it's hard just to stay in one proposition. It's, it's easy to move up and down the slide, as it were, talk about the incarnation and our hope as Christians and the new heavens and new earth. Um, but this idea of maker of heaven and earth is just so foundational to everything that's going to come afterwards. Yeah, guys, you know, I really appreciate everything you've been sharing because I think we can all benefit from like understanding the rich theological and biblical foundations for this uh, doctrine. You know, pastorally, this is foundation for us, uh, foundational because it helps us to think through the idea of stewardship. You know, so in the context of ministry, right, something as basic as if you believe that God is the maker of all things, including the self, right? And it really, you know, hits home. You think very differently about uh, things like money, you know, for instance, uh, at least in the context where I minister, uh, there's the popular belief, you know, my money is my money. But if in fact, I represent all my talents, my abilities, my personalities that have contributed to success, right? ultimately uh, because God has made me a certain way, that does change the way we view, you know, my money. You know, we see it in terms of stewardship. The other way I've seen this doctrine really play out in the lives of uh, believers is um, it's really, I think, invited some of them to reconsider this idea that my body is my body, and therefore I can do with my body whatever I want. If we believe that ultimately God is the creator of all things, it then does uh, cause us to ask, how should I steward my body? You know, is my body basically a vehicle I can do anything I want with? And I'm not even talking just about sexuality. I'm just I'm also talking about health and all of the above. Or if my body is something that God has created and entrusted to me, you know, then how should I steward even my body well? And so this in no way is an esoteric uh, doctrine that we're uh, discussing right now. That's a great point, Paul, and a real meaningful one, especially when we uh, consider humanities, our creation as being in the image of God, as it says uh, in Genesis 1. And, and image has become such a huge, uh, you know, there's been this huge resurgence of uh, image of God discussions, as you know, in recent discussions, we had a great conversation about image with uh, Christopher Watkin recently and, and uh, you know, Irwin in our discussions with Irwin as he was bringing in Bovink and his understanding of uh, image. You know, Gray, what you were saying earlier of how, you know, God had no model to, to, uh, for his act of creation other than his own, the use of his own wisdom is, is, is it really was fantastic, I have to say. Um, it, it's kind of hard not to, you know, engage in some mild, heartfelt worship as we're talking about this, because it's so fantastic. But it, it, it dawned on me that, you know, amongst creation, the one thing that he did use as a model that is of himself is humanity. You know, each, each aspect of creation is made according to a particular kind, sort of a, a blueprint in the mind of God, so to speak, in his own divine wisdom. But it's only humanity that he says is in his own image, as if, uh, you know, you see a blueprint of, 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 of God in humanity's creation and how unique uh, crea humanity's creation is in that sense. That really just adds to a lot of what Paul was just saying earlier. And that's why we need a whole creed that gives voice to all these different doctrines, because as we're going to see, these are reciprocal. These all relate to one another. 
And your doctrine of creation is going to influence your doctrine of Christ. It's going to influence your doctrine of the church, your doctrine of what the Lord is about and the work of redemption. And uh, there's some important connections here. Dr. Lee, you just touched on one of them, you know, the, the fact that Adam needs to be historical because Christ is historical. The fall needs to be historical because the resurrection is historical. And so you can't just disconnect these out, but these are all forming a kind of grammar, right? A grammar of theology, a grammar of our belief about who God is and what he requires of us. And I look forward to this conversation in the weeks ahead as we get to sort of dance around these creedal propositions and show how they're not only speaking about basic Christian truths themselves, but also interrelated truths, how these, how these truths tie together and form a whole system, a whole constellation of belief. And so I look forward to having that conversation down the road. Until we speak again, friends, it's great to see you. And for everyone else who's listening in, take care. say no i said uh i know i agree that that's why you can't get past genesis one two and three you see it's impossible i feel mildly exonerated right now i have to say no you shouldn't no you should feel no exoneration (laughs) at two brute at two Oh, that's great. I thought we were brothers there, Scott, for a moment. But, oh, oh, wait. No, I, 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 yes, you're exonerated. Oh, thank you. Sorry. <laughs>